Well, good morning, everybody. Welcome to Grace and everybody watching online and our live sites and uh, the Montrose Building. Welcome as well. You guys are going to have to be patient with my voice today. Uh, my voice sounds like my brain feels. So <clears throat> just so you know, if I kind of doze off <clears throat> or pass out, just um, sing along with the band and call an ambulance and we'll be, uh, <clears throat> we'll be fine. <laughs> But uh, it is good to be together, and uh, thanks for being here. We're starting a new series this weekend called Asking for a Friend. And uh, what we're doing is we're looking at some of the difficult passages in the Bible and trying to wrap our head around it a little bit. And the the passages we're going to look at usually center around God's holiness and his justice, his holiness and his justice. And what we found in lobby conversations and life group conversations is that passages like the ones we're going to look at over the next few weeks wind up being kind of hiccup points for folks where they would look and say, I do not understand what God is doing there or why he acted that way. And it will throw us off kilter a little bit, especially if we've really come to believe in God's compassion and grace and mercy and forgiveness, right? So here at Grace, we're going to teach that a lot because it's true that God is a compassionate God. He's a merciful God. He's not out to get you. He's out to love you. He's a gracious God, and he is equally a holy God, a righteous God, a just God. And what happens is if we don't understand God's justice and his holiness, then we actually can't grab a correct view of his compassion, his mercy, and his grace. And so these whole things go together. And as a Christ follower, when I worship God or follow Christ, I'm worshiping or following all of who he is, his whole character. And if you're not a Christ follower yet, when you think about interacting with God, we interact, we interact with God's holiness and justice as well as experience his compassion and his kindness. So it's who God is, it's his character, and it's all a part of our relationship with him. <clears throat> so we're going to look at this for a few weeks and <clears throat> we're going to look at his holiness and his justice, kind of lean into that a little bit and get our head around it. So I wanted to give us a working definition of holiness and justice just so we can talk about it. And these are big conversations. If you went into my office, I have books that are 700, 1,000 pages thick about God's holiness and then like another one about his justice. So this is not going to be an exhaustive conversation. It's going to be a conversation that, <clears throat> that points us to the heart and the mind of God and helps us to understand that a little bit better. So when I give you these definitions, some of you will... <clears throat> certainly look at these definitions and say, well, Jeff, that's incomplete. And I know that. So don't send the email. So I, uh, like ahead of time, I know what we're, what we're talking about here. Okay. So these are just working definitions about it. Here it is. <clears throat> when we think about God's holiness, this is what I put down as a definition. God's holiness is his power and goodness and perfection that is the very person of God. And we'll talk about the second part here in a moment. But God's power, his goodness, and his perfection, most of the time in the Bible, when you see God's holiness played out or lived out, it's usually in this, these three categories, right, generally. So it's God's power, 
So God's holiness is a, is a part of who God is, and you'll see that played out in his power, that he'll do something powerful, and he'll do something supernatural, and that's a part of who he is. You also see this played out in his goodness. A part of God's holiness is his goodness. This, is, this plays into the idea that God does not have any false motives. So God loves you because he chose to love you. When God forgives you of your sin, he's not trying to manipulate you. He's not trying to get you to join the church or give him money or something like that. When he interacts with you or tells you a truth, he's doing that out of a pure motive, and that's God's goodness. And then God's perfection, right? So God is sinless, and the, the reason that we have to deal with our sin in order to interact with God is because of his holiness, because he is sinless, and sin uh, and sinlessness cannot coexist. Perfection and imperfection cannot coexist with each other, right? So when we talk about God's holiness, and when the Bible talks about God's holiness, it's often in these categories, so to say. And like I said, this is not an exhaustive conversation. I get it. But this is a place for us to start. We're thinking about his power, we're thinking about his goodness, and we're thinking about his perfection. Now, when you flip the page to justice, what does that mean by God's justice? So God's justice is this idea that God's definition of good and evil equals his justice. And circumstantially, for us, it is God defining how life with him and each other should be, and that comes out of who he is. So God's justice is this idea that God is the one who defines good and evil, we don't. So when God says something is good, it's good. When he says something is evil, it's evil. Our opinion about that is irrelevant, right? Because God stated a truth. And so if something is good, it's good. If it's evil, it's evil. And if God then holds us to that standard of good and evil or truth, that's his business, right? He's allowed to do that because he's the, the definer of those things circumstantially then, God pulls that into our lives and he would say, you need to interact with each other this way and not this way. You need to love each other this way and don't harm each other this way and you need to interact with me the way that I say to interact with me. That my, what I define as the proper interaction with me is the proper interaction with me and this is my character, right? So these things come out of God's character it comes out of who he is. The Bible says several things about God. It says that God is love, God is light, God is truth, God is holy, God is just. It's who he is. And when I'm interacting with God, I am interacting with him based off of who he is, and he is holy and he is just. I was researching this, trying to get ready for our conversation, and I ran into an author. He gave a an illustration that was helpful to me. And he said, uh, he said this, he said, think of the sun, right? Not Jesus, but like the physical sun that's, that's never in our sky. But theoretically, there's one out there somewhere in Northeast Ohio, right? So think of the sun. And he said, the sun is what it is. The sun is our source of light. It's our source of warmth. It is what makes our plants grow. It protects us, it helps us. And if you're like me, it will burn you, it will cause things to wither, and if you get too close to it, it will destroy you. And it's all the same thing. It's the nature of the sun. 
the very things that we depend on it for and welcome it, when it comes out in Northeast Ohio, we're like, glory to God, right? So we're like, look at there's the sun. The beautiful fall weather that we get to enjoy here is the sun and the drought and the sunburn and it will annihilate you is the sun. It is the character of what it is. God is loving and he is gracious and he is compassionate and he is holy and he is just, right? And he is righteous. It is who he is. So as a Christ follower, I am interacting with all of him. And even if you're not a follower of Jesus yet, you are actually interacting with all of him. And knowing kind of this complete picture of God's nature is important. And knowing how that plays out in scripture and how he can be all of those things. So when God's justice comes to the forefront or his holiness comes to the forefront, he didn't lose his temper. He's not throwing a fit. He's not schizophrenic and he's like, you know what, zap your dad. That's not what he's doing. He's being himself. And we're seeing glimpses of all of him as we see these different pictures throughout scripture, okay? So we're gonna camp on this for a few weeks. And, and, and like I said, it, it's asking for a friend. It's the stuff about God that it's hard to explain. It's hard to get our head around. And we're like, mm, I don't wanna question the Bible, but my friend thinks, and I'm like, gotcha. And these lobby conversations, really people who are like good thinkers, like we'll, we'll think this way about God. It's important that we understand it because it's part of the God that we worship, it's the essence of, of who he is, okay? So what I want to do this weekend is I want to take us to a part in the Bible where we see this played out. So if you got your Bible, uh, open it up to the book of Acts, chapter 4. If you want to use the Bibles there in the chairs, it's page 886 in that Bible. Acts chapter 4, page 886. And we're going to learn about three people this weekend. We're going to learn about a guy named Barnabas, and then a husband and wife named Ananias and Sapphira. And we're going to see all of this play out in God's holiness and his justice play out kind of in, in real time here in Acts chapter 4. So let me set it up for you a little bit, okay? So Jesus has done his, his life on earth and done his ministry. He's laid his life down on the cross. He was crucified by his own authority. He took his life back up, so he now has resurrected from the dead, okay? And he hung out with his disciples and about 500 other people uh, for a, a few days here, a few weeks, and now he has gone back to heaven. So he's ascended to the Father, and he's at the right hand of the Father, okay? When he did that, he sent the Holy Spirit and he launched the church. So we actually know the day the church started. We call it the day of Pentecost. And so that all happened in Jerusalem. The church is launched. And the Bible says that about 4,000 people accepted Jesus at once. And then like suddenly uh, people are being added to the number of the church daily. So that's what's going on. So at this point in the scripture, everybody's amped up about Jesus. Everybody's amped up about the resurrection. Everybody's amped up about the Holy Spirit. And everybody has I love my church t-shirts on. And they're all, they're all amped up about this new entity called the church. Most of the people who accepted Jesus right at the very, very beginning of the church were Jewish converts. 
And for most of them in that culture, when you converted from Judaism to Christianity, you were cut off from your family. So you might have been asked to leave your house, you might have worked in the family business, now you don't have a job. All these dynamic things were happening, but people were picking up their cross and following Jesus. But there was a lot, a lot of need within the church because suddenly I have no food, no shelter, no, no path forward. So in response to that, the new believers were selling things that they had, their homes, their fields, their spare donkey, like all that kind of, the convertible one. Like they're selling all that and they're bringing the money and they're putting it at the disciples' feet. The disciples are taking the money and they're distributing it to meet people's needs. It's actually the exact same reason that we give financially today. You give to God for people and it's distributed through the church. It's the same thing we do with the money that we give here at Grace. So that whole process is starting and, it, and it's, uh, it's being distributed that way. They're bringing that money to the apostles' feet. And this is an important part of the, of the framing, okay? This is after Jesus, the beginning of the church, before the Bible is finished. And in that time frame there, that window, who Jesus left in charge were the apostles. And they were explaining his heart and his mind to people who were becoming followers, and they were, we would say, writing the Bible. A lot of what we study in the Bible is the apostles' writings. They had a special authority from God to speak on his behalf, special authority to do miracles, all those kind of things, but they were not worshipped. So they were not thought of as saints, and they weren't prayed to. They were not worshipped in any, any way. They were kind of filling this gap in between Jesus, the establishment of the church, and the giving of, of the scriptures, okay? But they were the representation of, of Christ on earth, and they were the authority of the very early churches. It, it, was, it was getting its feet on the ground. And Peter was one of those apostles. So the apostle Peter, the apostle James, the apostle Paul, like we talk about those guys a lot. Peter is one of those apostles, and he's in this story, okay? So Acts chapter 4, go to verse 32, and we'll start to see this play out. All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there were no needy persons among them. From time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone who was in need. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned, brought the money, and put it at the apostles' feet. Okay, that's Barnabas. Chapter 5, verse 1. Now a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. Then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has filled your heart so that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land? 
Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not lied just to human beings, but to God as well. And when Ananias heard this, he fell down and died. And great fear seized all who heard what had happened. Then some young men came forward, wrapped up his body, and carried him out and buried him. About three hours later, his wife came in. Not knowing what had happened, Peter asked her, tell me, is this the price that you and Ananias got for the land? Yes, she said, that is the price. And Peter said to her, how could you conspire to test the spirit of the Lord? Listen, the feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out also. And at that moment, she fell down at his feet and died. Then the young men came in, finding her dead, carried her out, buried her beside her husband, and great fear seized the whole church and all who heard of these events. Right? All right. The ushers are going to come and take our morning offering. And... <laughs> <laughs> and then you're dismissed. No, right? So what, what is going on here, right? I mean, this is a difficult passage in the scripture to deal with. And if you start thinking about it, there's a thousand questions that would, that would spur on to this. And it seems out of character with God. So this loving, gracious God who healed the lame and gave sight to the blind and allowed the deaf to hear and laid his life down and took it back up is now like striking people dead over an offering, right? It seems completely out of character and it's the kind of stuff that we hang up on a little bit and are always a little bit nervous to ask. So what is God doing What's happening here? Barnabas sells a field, everything's great, and Isis and Fire sell one. They come in and they run smack dab into the holiness of God and face and have to deal with his justice instantly in their lives. What, what's the deal and what are we to learn from it, okay? So let's look at this a little bit and dig at it. Chapter 4, verse 37 kind of sets the foundation for what we're trying to understand here in this part of the scripture. So Barnabas, son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the disciples' feet. That's a really important part of what's going on here. He sold the field, brought the money, and he put it at the disciples' feet. When Barnabas looked at his field, he looked and said, Jesus is my Lord and my King and my God. And I want my mind and heart to align with his mind and his heart. So when Barnabas looked at his field in relationship to his interaction with God, what he immediately saw was that my field is not mine, it's God's. The Bible says in Psalms that the earth is the Lord's and everything in it and all who dwell on it. So when God looks at our stuff, he doesn't see our stuff, he sees his stuff that we're taking care of. And so when Barnabas aligned his heart with the heart and the mind of God, he didn't see his field, he saw God's field and he saw God's resources that God wanted liquidated and invested in a different way. And so Barnabas acted on God's definition of ownership, sold his field, and then he brought the money that he got for the field and he put it at the disciples' feet. 
when he brought that money put it at the disciples' feet, this was an act of worship on Barnabas's part. Okay? This is what you entrusted me with. This is what you asked me to do. I did it. And my life and my stuff and my will is not my own. You are first place in affection, authority, and governance. And as an act of worship, I'm bringing, I'm not worshiping the disciples, but I'm bringing it to the church. I'm not writing a donation to a not-for-profit. I'm not, you know, taking a little bit of my extra money and giving it. I'm doing what I feel like God has called me to do. And as an act of worship, I'm coming into the presence, so to say, of a holy God with his holy possessions. And I have given my life and devotion. I have given definition and direction of myself to this holy God. This God that just raised himself from the dead. And I am giving to him what is his as in an act of public worship. This was happening in front of people. And I want to give these things back to God. Now, we know from the rest of kind of the New Testament, Barnabas goes on and it's, he's kind of introduced here and then he becomes a leader in the church. So when people watched Barnabas do this act of worship, a lot of things started to benefit Barnabas's life, not materialistic things. So it's not, you sow a seed, you get a thousand bucks back. That's all nonsense. The things that were blessings to Barnabas were things like this. Man, when we watched Barnabas do this, we felt loved by Barnabas. He gave up his field for us. We trust Barnabas. When Barnabas asks us to give, he's leading the way. We trust his integrity. You can trust Barnabas. We respect Barnabas. We follow Barnabas's leadership. Barnabas's stock, so to say, kind of rises among the people of God, and he becomes a leader in the church, and he leads mission trips, does all kinds of stuff. You'll find Barnabas on out through the New Testament, okay? So God blesses Barnabas with righteousness, with influence, with opportunity, and this act of worship triggers that, so to say, and represents the yielding of Barnabas's heart to Christ, okay? And he brought that and put it at the disciples' feet. Now, Ananias and Sapphira see all that, and they see the benefit of worship, the benefit of giving, the benefit of sacrifice, and so they decide to act on it as well. So a man named Ananias, together with his wife, she's in on it, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property, because this is what everybody's doing now. They also sold a piece of property. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but brought the rest, and where did he put it? At the disciples' feet. So he sells his field, he sees the honor, the leadership, the integrity, the blessing that Barnabas receives. And he and Sapphira, because she's in on it, look and say, I want to get me some of that. See? Barnabas gave publicly 
will give publicly, and if that will cause God to respond to me the way that I want him to, if that will cause God to bless me, if that will cause God to elevate me, if that will cause God's people to trust me, if I do that, I can put the little fish symbol on my business card. It, that will cause God's people not to, not to question me. That will give me positions of leadership within God's church. See? I'm going to give money to use God to bring influence into my life. But I don't actually want to do the act of devotion that Barnabas did. I just want the kickback Barnabas got. So Sapphira, come here. You know what we're going to do? We'll sell it. We'll make a big deal about it. We'll give it in an act of worship. But let's keep a chunk of it back. Because you know the boat's three years old now. You know what happens when they get old. Right? We didn't go on our cruise last year. You know what happens when you don't go on your cruise. So we're going to keep it back. But we're going to publicly... Enter the presence of a holy and just God under the guise of worship. And we're going to do what Barnabas did. And when they did it, Peter, the apostle Peter, confronts him. The Holy Spirit kind of alerted Peter to what was going on. And he confronts him and says, Ananias, what are you doing what, how did Satan get a hold of your heart that you thought that you could come into the presence of your creator, your Lord, your savior, your king, under the guise of worship and pull this off? Now look what, look what Peter says to him, because it's fascinating. Peter looks at him and says, Ananias, you lied to the Holy Spirit. You catch that. Because Peter doesn't look at Ananias and says, Ananias, you lied to me. I'm Peter for good night. I'm an apostle. What do you think you're doing? He, Peter was not personally offended by it. He does not look at Ananias and say, you lied to the church. What do you think you're doing? You don't lie to the church. Church has power. He wasn't offended on behalf of the church. He looked at Ananias and said, Ananias, you're lying to the Holy Spirit. You're trying to trick God. What are you doing? Peter goes on. He says, you have not just lied just to human beings, but you lied to God. You're not just lying to your supposed brothers and sisters in Christ about how much you love them and want to give to them. You're not just lying to them. You're lying to God. You stepped into the presence of a holy God. And you made up a story that you thought was going to get you benefit. And you thought was going to get you leadership. And you thought you were going to get credibility. And you tried to lie to God. What have you done? What have you done? Ananias and Sapphira stepped in and they, they lost sight for a moment 
of what they were doing and who they were doing it to. See, they look back at Barnabas. They're like, well, look what Barnabas did. That's supposed to happen to us, right? Because we're in on it. In fact, you back up to chapter four, verse 32. They're just looking at what other believers are doing and trying to mimic it. All the believers were in one mind, uh, one heart, one mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions were their own, but they, were sh they shared everything that they had. Ananias and Sapphira are looking back at that and saying, well, we're of one mind too. We're on the Jesus team. Well, they weren't understanding what one heart, one mind meant. And then they were like, you know, you know what, uh, we'll give some of our stuff to other people too. Well, they didn't understand what they were doing. When the Bible says that all the believers were, were one in heart and mind, they weren't one in heart and mind with simply each other. They were one in heart and mind with Christ. I want what Christ wants. I want to view the world as Christ views the world. I want to view my possessions the way that Christ views my possessions. I want to love people the way that Christ loves people. I want to share Christ's possessions with his people the way that he would. They weren't simply in sync with each other. It wasn't groupthink. They were one in heart and mind with Christ. No one claimed to have any of their own possessions were, were their own. They weren't looking and saying, you know what? Since we're Jesus followers now, we should, we should live in, uh, in communal living. The church has never lived in communal living. That's, that's not in the Bible. We're Jesus followers now, so things aren't important. We should be socialist. Church has never been socialist. It's never been communist. It's not, that, those are earthly political systems. It's got nothing to do with the Bible. What are you doing? They weren't looking and saying, well, things aren't mine. They're everybody's. They were looking and saying... My possessions are not my own. They belong to God. So when Barnabas comes in, he looks and says, I want to love the way that God loves. I want to serve the way that God serves. I'm one in heart and mind with Christ and with the people who are one in heart and mind with Christ. We're one in heart and mind with each other. And I look at my possessions I don't look and say my possessions are yours. I look and say my possessions are Christ. And if he wants his stuff back, I'll get it back to him, ASAP. Barnabas walks into the presence of God and puts it at the disciples' feet. And I and Sapphira like missed all of that. All they saw was the end game. See? They, they were pretending, they were thinking, they were manipulating, they were using God and using God's people. And in the context of worship, they came in and violated the holiness of God and encountered the justice of God. Here, I'm going to lie to God. No. Here, I'm going to... God and me are buddies, right? We're just doing a thing. I'm going to trick God. No. I am the Lord, Leviticus says, and I will be honored. I am your maker. I am your king. I am your God. And you will not lie and deceive and interact with me that way. God took their life. And the Bible says, great fear seized all those who heard what happened. I bet it did. 
right? Later on, and the next verse says, great fear seized the whole church in all who heard what had happened. Suddenly there's this awareness, like this has been great. Like Jesus loves me, he rose from the dead, the Holy Spirit thing is crazy and so much fun. We're all living and sharing and breaking bread and hanging out with each other and, and it's not for us. We are worshipers, followers, servants of a holy and a just God. Sapphira comes in three hours later. Peter asks the same question. Is this all the money? Oh, yeah. Remember, because they were in it together. Peter looks at her and says the same thing to her. How could you conspire to test the spirit of the Lord? He's not upset that she's lying to him. He's not upset that she's lying to the church. How could you conspire to violate the holiness of God? We, we're barely done burying your husband. No. And the justice of God comes to the forefront because the holiness of God has been violated and God requires Sapphire's life as well. Okay. Tough stuff, right? Never see that on a t-shirt. And she dropped dead. You never see that one. It's never that tattoo anywhere, right? It, it's, it's tough stuff. And it seems like harsh stuff but in reality, it's God's stuff, okay? Now, when we look at this passage, this is what you gotta get, ready? This passage has nothing to do with giving. It's not a money passage. There's money passages in the Bible, this isn't one of them, right? So it has nothing to do with how much you're supposed to give, uh, how often you're supposed to give or where you're supposed to give. It's got nothing to do with that, you're off the hook on it. So it's, not, it's, not a, it's not about giving. Money in this passage was simply the idol that Ananias and Sapphira chose over Christ. It's, it's just the, the platform that this all played out on. But this, has, this passage does not define our giving in any way, shape, or form. So God is not judging their giving. That's not why they lost their life. He is not judging the amount they give. He wasn't like, oh, 8%, huh? You're dead. That's not what he's doing at all. He's not judging their inability or unwillingness to engage in a, set, a special project. Oh, I see you didn't give to all in, all out. Well, it's not what's happening in any way, shape, or form here. What God is doing is he's judging their heart and he's looking at them and he's saying, listen, what happened to them physically is what will happen to everyone spiritually. If you choose to gain the whole world, you will forfeit your soul. And Ananias and Sapphira chose. See, they, cho they did it on purpose. They chose to gain the world. And God required their soul, and he looked at them and said, what are you doing? I am not your buddy, I'm not your pal, I'm not your bro, I'm your God. And my holiness will not be violated. God judged their deceitful heart. And I said, are you, you're trying to lie to me? I know 
your thoughts. I know your motives. I know your actions. This is crazy. You would so defiantly come into my presence and try to lie to me? You're not honoring me or interacting with me as God. No, that's not happening. He's judging the manipulation of their heart. You want to, you want to use me? I'm God. I don't exist for you. You exist for me. You want, you're going to use me? You think you're trying to bribe me? What number we need here, God? What number we need to get the Barnabas action? No. I'm a holy God, and you're going to run into my justice. He's looking at a deceitful heart. He's looking at a manipulative heart and an ungrateful heart. See, you, you thought that field was yours? The earth and everything in it's mine. You didn't create the field. I created the field. And when you look at the field that I'm letting you use and be blessed by, and now you're going to hoard it as if it's not mine? You sold what is mine and then gave me part of my money? No. And he's looking at their heart. He's looking at like the pattern of their thinking. And he's looking at the wickedness or the sinfulness of their heart. And he's like, right, I am God. I decide what's good. I decide what's evil. And I decide what is a just punishment or reward. Those are my decisions. They're not yours. And you will not violate my holiness. I am God. I will be honored. No. And their life was required of them. Now, that sermon will preach, man. When I was growing up, woo, buddy, pastor would be all sweaty and fired up and not because he had a low-grade fever like I do. He, he would be all worked up about that, right? And he'd be yelling and screaming. He'd pound the pulpit. I'd pound the pulpit, but the music stand just goes down when you hit it. So you lose the effect, right? But he'd be all worked up in the church I grew up in. We knew all about the righteousness, the holiness of God. What I was missing is just nobody ever told me God loved me. <laughs> Later on, I was like, oh, <laughs> how about that? And so I never got the complete picture, right? Here at Grace, if we're going to err, we're probably going to err on the other side a little bit. That God is a gracious God, loves us, he's compassionate, he's good, he's rich in mercy, full of grace. Like, we're going to tell that story a whole bunch because it's true, but it's equally true that God is holy, God is just, God is righteous, right? And here's the thing. We need God to be that way. I need God to be a holy God, and so do you. I need God to be a just God, so do you. I don't always like it when his holiness affects me or restricts me. I don't always like it when I run into his justice because I like to make my own truth and live by it. But I need God to be a holy God and a, and a just God because if he's not a holy God and a just God, he cannot be a merciful God and a compassionate God. The Son is the Son. It cannot warm us, heal us, help us, provide for us if it's unable to burn us, scorch us, and annihilate us if we get too close to it. I need the sun to be the whole sun, and I need God to be a whole God. I need a holy God because out of his holiness is his power, and I need a God who is powerful enough 
that when he devises a plan for my redemption, he can execute it and fulfill it. A God that's powerful enough that when he chooses to lay his life down, by his own power and authority, he can take it up again. I don't need a God that can simply lay his life down because many good people lay their lives down for good people. I don't need a good version of me. I need God to be God. And I need him to be holy. See? So that that power is there. I need him to be holy so that his goodness is available. Because I need God not to have mixed motives with me. I need him to love me in a pure way. So that when he offers salvation, he's not tricking me or manipulating me. Getting me to follow him, taking ownership and control over my life and trying to squeeze every nickel out of me. I don't need a cult leader. I need a God. A God who is holy, who is good to his core, who would look at people who are standing in defiance of him and his goodness in part would draw him to act on our behalf. And I don't need an okay God I need a perfect God. I don't need a better, better version of me because I'm okay. Like I'm pretty moral and decently kind. I'm a pretty good guy. I don't need a pretty good guy. I need a perfect God. A God that's perfect enough that he can step out of heaven, come to earth, never sin, lay his life down as a innocent sacrifice, able to pay for my sin, willing to pay a debt he didn't know for me who owes a debt that I can't pay. I really, really need a holy God or there is no forgiveness, there is no salvation, there is no sanctification, there is no path to heaven if God is not a holy God. And when that holiness is violated, it's not my place to question his justice. It just seems unfair what he did to Ananias and Sapphira because I do that stuff to God all the time. I'm not struck that. Why did they get nailed for it? I don't know the answer to that question. I just know I have a holy God. And the fear and the reverence and the awe and the respect for my friend, my brother, my Lord, my Savior, my King, my God. When I step before him in an act of worship, I don't worship my buddy. I don't worship the apostles. You don't worship Pastor Jeff. Christ and Christ alone because of who he is. He's a holy God. I need a just God really bad, super bad. I need a just God. Because if God is not just, then I can never release bitterness, anger, slanding, brawling, or malice from my heart. And I will live a vengeful life. All of us get hurt. And all of us are treated in an unjust way. Every single human being. What human beings do best and most consistently is sin against each other. We're really, really good at that. It's our nature. I need a just God. 
Because if I as a human being cannot look and say, I serve a just God that everyone will answer to, every knee will bow, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, that he is God. We will stand before him. We all will give an account for every word, action, motive, deed, everything we've ever done in our lives. Every human being will do that. I need to know that that God is just. Because if God isn't just, I can't release my pain. I have to chase it down. Because as a human being, I have to have justice or I'll go insane. I have to know that the person who abused me will face justice even if I can't bring it to them. I have to know that the lie told to me will be revealed even though nobody believes what I'm saying. I have to know that the bitterness within me can be handed over to God and his wrath and his justice is perfect and I don't have to worry about that. I have to know that vengeance is the Lord's, not mine, or I will chase you down and even the score with you all day, every day, and I'll give my life to it and destroy my life in the process. I really, really need there to be a just God. I don't always like it when that justice hits me because I like to make my own rules up. But I also, in order to rest, to live, to function, I want God to be a just God. I need that sun to warm me, that sun to help me, that sun to cheer me, that sun to make my garden grow. And it will burn me and it will scorch me and it will annihilate me if I get too close to it. But I need the sun to be the sun. See? And why did God strike Ananias and Sapphira down? Why did he choose to execute his justice in that way in that moment? I don't really have an answer to that. I know what they did, but I see myself do that a thousand times. That's God's perfect justice. His decision is not mine. The why is up to him. The what and the who, that's what I want to get my head around and understand. See? And until I understand God's holiness, until I understand his justice, I really can't understand his grace and his mercy because I won't believe that I need it. If I don't see that I'm Ananias and Sapphira and that could happen to me and that's, that God would be completely right in doing that, until I see that, I don't understand how merciful he's being to me. Because how many times have you sold a field and kept some back for yourself? How many times have you falsely presented yourself to God? I do it all the time. And until I see what I've earned for myself, the wages of my sin, then I can't even begin to comprehend the depth and the richness of God's mercy and God's grace. See? And this is the God that we worship. He's all of that, equally and perfectly. This is the God that we serve. This is the God that we'll look eyeball to eyeball with one day. And as a Christ follower, when I look eyeball to eyeball with God, I can claim the name, the forgiveness, the, the, the purity, the holiness of Christ. 
If I'm not a Christ follower, then I'm going to have to deal with the holiness and the justice of God on my own. And it's not going to go well. Right? It's going to be an Ananias and Sapphira moment. And justice will be brought to me. Okay? I was trying to think of ways to put handles on this in my life. And so I, I wrote some questions maybe to kind of carry this out with us a little bit. First question I wrote was this. Do you recognize the holiness and the justice of God? Here, I, I dare you to do something. Double dog dare you. Do something. Look at areas of your life and think about what you deserve. Right? If God's, God's standard is not goodness, it's perfection. Okay, so if God's standard is a perfection, I'm never selfish. I'm never harsh. I'm never immoral. I'm never. And every time that I violate God's holiness, he is perfectly just if he just took my life and condemned me to hell. So not walking around with guilt or shame, that's not the game that God plays and certainly not the one that Grace Church plays. But in gratitude, just start thinking about like, ooh, Ah, e. And what happens is the more that you lock into God's justice and God's holiness, the more that you'll recognize God's mercy and grace in your life, right? So start to see it. Make a list, right? Make a list of all the things that should have caused you to forfeit your soul and see God's patience and his mercy and his love and his kindness in response to those things. The second thing I wrote down was this. I think this is a big one. Is there any aspect of your life in which you're lying to God? I think this is a big one. Here's the deal with Ananias and Sapphira, ready? If Ananias and Sapphira would have walked in and said, hey, Peter, we sold a field and we just felt led by God to give 50% of the proceeds to, to the work that God's doing here, and we're going to take the other 50% and we're going to reinvest in some of our other businesses. They would have had a Barnabas response. It's not about the amount. It's not about the amount. It was the lie. See? And this is what happens. When we live a duplicitous life, when we, when we put on a public facade, and we're this person at home, this person at church, this person when the wife's at home, this person when our roommate's in the room. And we lie to God and we lie to God's people. Part of what God would want us to take away from what happened here with Ananias and Sapphira is the pure ridiculousness of that. God knows you. He knows every thought you have. He knows every word you've said. He knows every motive that you've had. He knows everything you've ever done. He already knows your lies. Now there's good news and bad news to that. The bad news is that when you try to lie to God, you can't. And you're gonna run right into his holiness and his justice and you're gonna be in an Ananias and Sapphira kind of a mess. It's not going to work. 
It doesn't work in life. It's not going to work in eternity. You're not going to stand before God, look him in the eye, and talk your way out of it. It's not going to work. That's the bad news. Here's the good news. Ready? It's really good news. Really good news is God knows your lies. And his response to your lies is to love you. Knowing that you're lying and living a duplicitous life, he's chosen to give his life. He's chosen to offer forgiveness. He's chosen to offer mercy. He's chosen to offer compassion. He's chosen to cleanse you of your sin. There's no point of lying. You're not fooling him. So the Bible says we bring our sins into the light so that God can cleanse us and heal us and change us and free us. There's no point of faking it. Well, you can't fake it with God. You can't fake it with God. But you can be free because of God. You can have a new life empowered by God. You can, you can have the, the bondage, is the word the Bible uses, the bondage of sin broken in your life by the love of Christ. So is there anything in your life that you're lying to God about? What's the point? He knows he's chosen to forgive. And if you keep the lie up, he is a holy and just God. And his holiness and his justice will be dealt with. We will face it, all of us. And when I face his holiness and his justice and I say Jesus forgave me and I accepted his justice is satisfied and his holiness will enter into it. And if I stand before that judge on my own, I'm in trouble, right? So that holy and just God gave his son, right? To free us, to rescue us from all this, okay? All right. Band's gonna come out. Would you pray with me? We'll take a few minutes and just download what God's teaching us. Jesus, help us with this. But I love this song we're about to sing. Your, your mercy triumphs over judgment. And grateful, God, that we live in that place right now where your mercy and your grace and your compassion, that part of your character, is at the forefront. Your mercy doesn't eradicate judgment. <laughs> it just gives us an answer to give you when we face you. So God, help us in this. Help us to not take for granted who you are. To not be passive about who you are, that when we worship you, and we live for you, and we walk with you, it is with our friend and our brother and our Lord and our Savior, and our God. And that is the nature of our relationship. So God, in aspects of our life, draw us closer to you, whether you need to confront us, or challenge us, or comfort us, or help us. Would you do that in these still moments as we sing about, respond to, and really give you the freedom to press this truth into our hearts even now?